I just want to remind you that uh, out in the lobby today, maybe you saw it coming in, we do have the Life Journal table, which, uh, which has the Life Journals on it to help you feed yourself from God's Word. And that's a reminder it's out there. Uh, after this week, uh, you can pick your Life Journals up in the church office, but we won't have it in the lobby for a few weeks at least. What I really want to let you know and remind you of is if you're struggling about how to use them, you know, you get it and it's like, wow, there's a lot of blank pages in here. And I read the Bible, I'm not sure what to write on there. If you're struggling with that, really want to encourage you. Just talk to us, ask us, ask at the table, ask one of us as pastors and be glad to help you maybe get over the hump and figure out how to begin applying some of what you're reading to your life. As always, we remind you, it's not a Bible reading contest. It's a way for you to get fed. So don't worry about, you know, I missed a day or I haven't caught up or whatever. Just be able to take in God's word and let us help you if we possibly can. We're going to be learning again today from God's word. So let me say a prayer for that right now. Father, we thank you again and ask you to teach us from your word. We're thankful that whenever we uh, do take that time to to listen and focus and learn that you always have something for us. We want to know what that is for each of us today. So, Father, increase our ability to concentrate, but also, Father, to have a soft and open heart and willing mind to listen and not resist what you may be speaking into our lives. I ask in Christ's name. Amen. Over at OSU, there's a place I've never been yet, but I'm hoping to get in there. It, it's uh, Kearney Hall on the campus, the College of Engineering building, which they uh, re-renovated, I guess would be the best way to say it, renovated it a year or so ago. And when they did that, one of the reasons why I want to go over there is that, that uh, from what I've heard, there are holes cut in the wall. We can actually look in through the wall. And they did that on purpose because it's a College of Engineering, so they thought, well, it makes sense to let you see how a building is engineered. And so from what I've heard, you can walk along, you can look through one window and you see how all the pipes are uh, run through the walls. And you go another place and you can see how they did all the rebar in the building. And another place, um, you can check out how they attached, you know, some of the the new renovations to the old building. Sounds kind of cool. You know, I don't understand all of those things, but I'm one of those persons that loves to know how things work. Well, here this past couple of weeks and for the rest of the month of January, we're learning how church works. How church works. And the great news is God has cut some holes in the wall, so to speak. He has done that by just in his word revealing to us how church works. And that's very important for us to know, remember, because if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, if you put your faith in him, you've been forgiven your sins, then guess what? You are a member of Jesus' church, his universal church. You are a member. And the scripture says very clearly you have a role to play in his church. So we want to know how church works. We're also interested in how church works because of how important church is. We've learned in the, in the past few weeks and been reminded that, that church is incredible. It's the special people of God together. And it's through the church, it's through the church that God is working his incredible plan of redemption, bringing lost men and women back to himself and transforming lives. God has chosen to do that great work through the church. Jesus Christ died on the cross. He paid for the sins of everyone. But the good news needs to go out. People need to respond to God. Then they need to grow up as disciples of Jesus Christ. And it's through the church that God is doing that. So if we're going to be on the same page with what God is doing, we need to know how church works. We also learned the incredible fact that God is revealing his greatness through the church. Through the church, the scripture says he's revealing his greatness, his love, his power, his mercy, his kindness, All of these things, he's revealing it through the church. And he's not just revealing it to the world around us, but the scriptures we read in the the book of Ephesians showed us that he's revealing it to the entire universe. That angels and demons are watching what God is doing here on earth and how he's working in and through his church and in our lives. He's watching the church in action and they're they're, uh, they're learning about God. Who knows what God is doing in the universe in parts that we don't even see? But God's doing all of that. And so we want to be on the same page with God. We want to know what's going on in church. Some of the things we've learned about, uh, about church help us to, to stay in touch so we know how to behave in the church, how to respond to the church. One of the things we learned, first of all, was this. It's God who makes church happen. God makes church happen. It's not humans who do church and God sits back and watch, uh, watches. No, God is the one who initiates the church. He is the one who guides the church, leads the church, empowers the church. He is a constant active presence. He's the driving force in the church. 
So God makes church happen. But how else does church work? Last week we learned that God works through leaders. That contrary to what some may believe, uh, churches just don't uh, uh, have their leadership structure because, well, that sounded like a good idea. Let's do it this way. But God actually lays out a plan for leadership and structure in his church. We find it in the Bible. And he works through leaders. We learned last week in particular how he works through uh, the group of leaders called elders, elders, overseers of the church. But there's more to, to learn. And so we want to make sure we, we learn it today. And uh, fact number three we want to focus on today is this. God not only works through leaders, but God also ministers through members. God ministers through the members of the church. Maybe for some of you, that's a, that's a weird concept. Maybe even in relation to what we've been learning here, because we learned last week that God really does uh, uh, call out a few special people into these uh, leadership positions in church. And they have some very weighty and serious and multiple uh, um, um, amounts of responsibility in the church. And so your thought sitting back is, well, how does that work? I mean, God, God works through the leaders. We just learned that. And those gifted leaders, those are the ones we learned last week are, include pastors, teachers. And so maybe in your mind, the thought is, well, God really works through those leaders, but, but you know, there's those special ones we learned about, the special and not in themselves, but just in the sense that God has gifted them and allowed them a place of ministry. Pastors and teachers and their elders, we learned that, they're, they're elders too, but God is using them. And so, so they form sort of the clergy, right? It's the clergy that does the church. The, the clergy are the ministers of the church. And so the responsibility of the people is to support the ministers, right? They support them financially. They support the overall work of the ministry financially. And you pray for the church and you encourage the leaders who are doing the church, but they do the church. It's not the ministers uh, or it's not the members who are the ministers of the church. Maybe that's been your outlook all of your life. Maybe you've even said, you know what? The, the way I grew up in church, that's the way it always was. Clergy did the ministry. Well, you know, that may have been the way you grew up. It's not the way it's always been. It's certainly not how God intended the church to work according to the Bible. That clergy does the ministry approach was taken up long after the time of Jesus Christ. And it actually contradicts what the Bible teaches. For instance, we learned about elders already, but we know that... that In addition to elders and the pastors and teachers and evangelists who lead, God's plan for ministry includes another group of people. They're called deacons. Deacons. Have you ever heard about deacons? In the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 1, we read in uh, this letter to the church in the city of Philippi. It says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers, remember that's another word for elders, the overseers and deacons. So right there we learn that there's another group of people in the church who are also ministers of the church. And that's confirmed in 1 Timothy 3 also, where we see that there are qualifications for deacons listed. There are qualifications uh, for, uh, at the same time, deaconesses. In other words, male and female deacons. They're part of God's plan for ministry. It's right there in Scripture. Probably you've heard the word deacons before, but do you know actually what their role is in the church? Clearly, because they're distinguished from elders, they are not overseers of the church. But what exactly is their role in? Well, you know, the word deacon itself gives us a clue. In the original Greek text of the, of the New Testament, the, the word in the Greek language is diakonos. Diakonos, that means a deacon. We just transliterated diakonos into the English language and got our word deacon. But the word diakonos means very simply servant. Servant. That's all that word means. So, so deacons are servants. And maybe your first thought is, oh, I get it. Deacons are servants of elders. They serve the elders. No, that's actually wrong. Deacons serve God in the church. They are servants of God in the church. By the way, did you... Uh, do you know the other English word that we use sometimes when we translate that Greek word diakonos when you're reading in Scripture? One word is servants. There's another word. You know what that word is? Minister. Minister. Now, because of our, uh, the way things have sometimes been done in different churches and different places and just sort of how the English language has, has evolved, we think of that a minister, that, that means a, a clergy person, right? Uh, 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 that's a minister. 
But the word minister really just means servant. Servant. And, and the word uh, ministry just means serving. Serving. So in the Bible, when you read those words ministry and minister, just think serving and servants. That's what, it all, that's what it's all about. And deacons are, are part of those servants of God in the church. What kind of servants? Well, because deacons are mentioned alongside elders in the New Testament, and because their qualifications that are listed right beside elders are there, and those qualifications are very high, they almost match the qualifications for the elders. And because there's just maybe one or two qualifications that don't match elders in particular, for instance, the ability to teach the Word of God and so on, we're able to put all this together and say, okay, deacons are also leaders in the church. They're just not overseers. They're just not the elders. But they still are servant leaders in the church. They serve God in the church as leaders of ministries. Ministries. They're not the overseers, but they're still ministry leaders. We, we get a picture of them in the book of Acts, chapter 6. In that chapter, we don't even uh, find the word deacons. But we find, you know, coming out of the original Greek text, we find that that word diakonos appears about three or four times in different forms, being translated, you know, serve or serving or ministry. And what is described here in Acts chapter 6 gives us a picture of how deacons are are servant leaders. Remember, we've read this passage before. It involves a a conflict. It records a a conflict that arose in in the Jerusalem church, the first church of Jesus Christ. And the conflict arose because in the ministry of caring for the poor widows, they were serving meals to the poor widows. In that ministry of caring, um, a conflict arose because the widows whose cultural background was Greek uh, were not getting served as well as the minister uh, or as the widows whose cultural background uh, uh, was Jewish, Hebrew. And so a little, uh, a little dispute arose. And evidently, you know, that, that failure to serve was not intentional. It was a result of some cultural misunderstandings and some just basic personal human misunderstandings. And because the church was growing so rapidly, the organization of the church couldn't keep up with everything the church should be doing. So the, the problem was brought to the attention of the elders of the church at that time, who happened to be the apostles. The apostles there in that first church, they were acting as the leaders of the church. And they wanted to resolve the situation positively. But they knew that they could not personally step in and just take over that that ministry of serving the widows. Here's what it says in Acts uh, chapter 6, verse 2. The text I'm reading is out of the New American Standard translation. It says, so the twelve, that would be the apostles, summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. That's not an arrogant statement on their part. What they were saying is, our primary role here, we need to be the teachers of all these brand new believers in this new church of Jesus Christ. We can't give up that role, and, uh, and so we can't take on this, this role of serving the widows. Therefore, they said, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles. And after praying, in other words, praying for their new ministry, they laid their hands on them. The the sign of affirmation of you're authorized, you are appointed to ministry. They made that clear. So these men took over the leadership of that caring ministry. Maybe there's a hint here that they took over leadership of all the caring ministries that were going on in that church at that time. And here we begin to get a picture of, of, of uh, deacons and what deacons do, the snapshot of the kinds of ministry that deacons do. They are leaders who address specific ministry tasks and who oversee specific ministry teams. In the Bible, there's really no instruction beyond that about how they're to be organized or, uh, you know, what they should be uh, doing, how many or anything like that. And so we know that's left to individual congregations to work that out. And we know that some congregations actually put together a deacon board. Maybe you've been in a church before where there was a deacon board. Maybe they had very specific responsibilities, you know, the serving of communion, uh, going to visit uh, those in need or, or whatever. And so that's how some churches do it. Other churches, like ours, we don't have an official board that meets, but yet we appoint people into ministry positions that are deacon-level 
positions. They're leading uh, ministry teams or they're doing specific ministry tasks as leaders. So you get the little picture there of how deaconing works. That's what deacons do in the church. One thing, by the way, to, to not overlook in all of this is that both with deacons and elders, you'll always see in Scripture it talks about a plural number of them in the congregations. A plural number. Never just one but always multiple elders and deacons. This is God's way for his church. If you go back even into the Old Testament, you'll see how God uh, loves to see his, his people work in teams. And this is God's design for his church that people work in teams, even at the leadership level. It serves some good purposes. For one thing, it, uh, it gives leaders accountability. They're accountable to one another. That prevents you know, one person from maybe getting a little too prideful, a little too out of hand, abusing some power. There's accountability in leadership. But it also brings a healthy diversity of leadership you know, to the church. That it, There's more than one person bringing their leadership skills and background. It prevents any one leader from being overwhelmed by the great number of things there are to do in the ministry of the church. And it provides leaders with fellow leaders who can be encouragers and, and uh, supporters so that they support one another. Ministry always works better in teams. And so now we see in God's plan that there are elders teams and there are deacon teams that do the ministry of the church. So that's good. We've got more ministry happening in the church. And it goes beyond those who might be called, you know, pastor, minister, clergy, whatever you want to call them. But this isn't the end of it. You see, it gets better even because there's one more team. There's one more team that Scripture says does the ministry of the church. And that one more team is, guess what? Every other member All the members of the church together are the team of ministers for the church. The Bible is very, very clear about this. In God's church, every member is a minister. Not becoming a minister, not thinking about being a minister. In God's church, every member is a minister. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. We've read this previously. Uh, when we were uh, seeing how God is the driving force behind the church. And we read that, that God has appointed for his church some as apostles and some as prophets. Remember, those were the foundation of the early church. It says that in Ephesians chapter 2. They were the foundation, special leaders with special roles for that time, the apostles and prophets. And then he appointed some as evangelists, those who would be able uh, to uh, have a, a special gift to use in leading people to, to uh, faith in Jesus Christ. And some as pastors and teachers, some as pastors and teachers. Now, make sure that you, that you notice that there. God has appointed those pastors and teachers. Now, what are they to do? Are they to do the ministry for the rest of the church? No, look exactly at what pastors and teachers are to do. The pastors and teachers, the next verse says is, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Notice that. For the work of service. For the work of service. The, the pastors and teachers equip the saints for the work of service. See that word service? You know what the Greek word is behind that? Diakonos. It, it's, it's for the work of serving. And so, so God's desire, God's plan for pastors and teachers, is that they equip the saints for the work of ministry. Because remember, serving is ministry. So the saints are the ones who do the ministry, which may make you think, oh, I get it now. There's elders, there's deacons, and then there's those saints. The saints are the ones who are the super Christians, right? They're people who have better gifts than anyone else in the church, and they're more dedicated than anyone else in the church, and God has given them something really special. So, gosh, that's wonderful, because in congregations then, God must raise up a few saints to do the ministry, right? Wrong. Wrong. God does entrust the ministry to the saints, but you understand that in the Scriptures, in the the Bible, the word saint and saint never refers to super-Christians. It refers to every single Christian. Every single Christian. The New International Version of the, uh, in the English translation, which many of you carry, brings this out. It tries to smooth out some of these more literal translations from the uh, New American Standard. And when it does that, it translates this for the equipping of, guess what? God's people, it says. 
for the equipping of God's people, for the, the work of service, for ministry, for ministry. By the way, that word saints just literally means holy ones, holy ones. And what that means is those who are set apart for God's, for, to be God's people and to do God's work. Those who are set apart for service to God. Not because they're so great in themselves, but because God saved them. God poured the spirit, His Spirit into their hearts. He's transforming them. Now He's called them to a life of devotion to God. Every Christ follower is a saint. Is a saint. Every member of His church. And so then, what is this telling us? Every member of the church is a minister of Jesus Christ. Every member, right along with the elders and the pastors and the deacons. An elder, pastor, deacon in God's plan for his church is no more a minister than anyone else, a church, uh, anyone else in the church. And you all here, uh, if you're not a, an elder or a deacon or a pastor or whatever, you're no less a minister than the elders or the pastors or the deacons. We're all called to ministry together. In Ephesians 4:11 and 12, remember that primary ministry of the pastors is to what? Not to do the bulk of the ministry, but to equip. Remember that word? to equip the saints for the work of service. That just means to bring the, the, uh, the other members of the church to a place of readiness and, and fitness to do ministry. That's the role of the elders and the pastors and, the, and uh, deacons alongside of them as well. Maybe the thought's running to your, through your mind, though. How can the average Christian, though, do the ministry of the church? Well, remember, what's the first thing we learned? God makes church happen. God makes church happen, and he's the driving force behind church. And we learned as part of that that he empowers the church for, the, for ministry. And the church is all of us, so he empowers all of us for ministry. One of the prime ways we already uh, touched on this earlier that he does this is that he empowers for ministry by giving everyone in his church serving gifts. Some people call them spiritual gifts. We'll call them serving gifts to be used in his ministry. In Ephesians chapter 4, just a few verses before where it says he gave some as apostles and prophets and so on. Chapter 4, verse 7, it says this, But to each one of us, that's all of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Notice, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, often in the Bible, when you read of grace being given to us by God, that refers to His saving grace. His saving grace that we have received, right? Because we sing that song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Saving grace. Because what God does is, He reaches out to us even though we don't deserve it. We don't deserve His love or His outreach to us, but He does it anyway. He draws us to Himself. He helps us to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, of the possibility of forgiveness if we believe and yield our life to Jesus Christ. He helps us to understand that. When we believe, then what does He do? He forgives us our sins. He adopts us into His family. He pours His Spirit into us. He gives us eternal life. That's saving grace. You got that in mind now? That's saving grace. That's not what's being talked about in this verse here uh, in Ephesians 4, 7. Because sometimes when we read in the Bible of grace being given to us, it's not saving grace that's being talked about, but serving grace. Serving grace. That is, God is giving to us serving gifts which enable us to minister for Him. And remember it said, to each of us, God is giving this grace. That's the grace that is written about in Ephesians chapter 3. Also, where the Apostle Paul is writing. And he says, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of His power. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. You say, wow, the Apostle Paul, what an incredible servant of God. And it was amazing how he would go out to these new places he would go cross-culturally into new regions. And he would, he would go there. People had never heard of Jesus before. And he would, he would tell them about Jesus, and they would respond. Uh, you know, sometimes at the first hearing, they would put their faith in Jesus. And then he would be discipling them. The next thing you know, you got another church of Jesus Christ growing up in a city where there had never been a church of Jesus Christ before. You go, wow, how could Paul could have been so great to do that? Because God gave him the serving gift and the ability to do that. And when, when, he, when he used that gift, God worked through it. You see? 
He had that serving uh, grace given to him. That's what it's, it's talking about in Ephesians 4, 7. There it is again. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. That's the context there. Catch that. Not merely elders, pastors, deacons have serving gifts given to them to serve in the church, but every single one of us does. And so that's why we read in the book of 1 Corinthians, which a couple of weeks ago we touched on, where it talks about this and it says what? Now, there are varieties of gifts, it says. Talking about serving gifts. And, but the same Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who gives it. And there are varieties of ministries as people use their serving gifts. But there's the same Lord. But to each one, there's that, that phrase again, each one, each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. One in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to, here's this, these two words again, each one individually, just as He, God, wills. Notice here, the serving gifts we receive, they're nothing of our own doing. Absolutely nothing of our own doing. We aren't born with them. We don't earn them. We don't even get to pick them. God doesn't say, uh, hey, I'm ready. Come on, step up here. Look at this board of serving gifts. Why don't you pick whatever you like? Doesn't happen. God doesn't say, pray for God to give you this particular gift and He'll give it to you. Nope, doesn't work that way. It's nothing to do with you. It's everything to do with God. He picks and chooses and gives you your serving gift. They are completely gifts of grace, undeserved, unaccountable in any other way. God gives it to you. Years ago, Pastor Ray Stedman did a great job explaining serving gifts in a practical way and helping Christians in America who had sort of lost sight of this to really understand serving gifts better. And I love his definition. It's just simple, but I love his definition of a serving gift. He says this, a serving gift is a capacity for service which is given to every true Christian, notice that, a capacity for service, an ability to minister that's given to every true Christian without exception, and which was something each did not possess before he became a Christian. That being so, uh, Stedman went on to emphasize that natural talents, natural talents need to be always understood as being different from spiritual gifts. Did you know that? The serving gifts, spiritual gifts you have, the serving gifts are different than your natural talents because natural talents are gifts of God. Serving uh, gifts are gifts from God. But as Stedman pointed out, he said, here's the simple reason for the difference. Serving gifts are given for spiritual ends only and only to Christians. It's only the Christians that get the serving gifts And they always are for a purpose that is spiritual, that has something to do with our relationship with God and his church and his ministry. Sometimes, though, we do know that that God will tie our spiritual gifts and use them in conjunction with our natural talents, even our uh, taking into account our personality and our experiences and all these things. God will work our serving gift together with those things to make us very very effective, effective in ministry. James Montgomery Boyce uh, wrote about this following up on Stedman. He said, it's also true that a Christian may exercise a spiritual gift through a natural talent. Examples would be one who fulfills the gift of helping through a talent for carpentry, baking, financial management, or similar things. Or one who fulfills the gift of exhortation through a natural ability to get close to people. In the Old Testament, we actually find an example that's sometimes pointed to. And we do know that in the Old Testament, God had not chosen to give the spiritual gifts as we know them in the New Testament yet. And yet we can still see how God would use this tying of, of the spiritual gift and the natural ability, the serving gift together. There's a passage in Exodus chapter 31 that's often pointed out about a man named Bezalel. Bezalel was one of the craftsmen. In fact, he was appointed to be the key, uh, the key craftsman who worked on the objects of the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a building that God wanted built for worship. According to the Old Testament system of worship, it had to follow his specific plan so that it accomplished what, it wanted in, uh, what God wanted in leading the people to worship him in the right way. But as God designed it, he also designed it to be a very beautiful building uh, as well. 
And so it had to be beautiful, but it had to be functional in just the way God had planned it. And so Bezalel was appointed, was appointed to be the one who would oversee the constructing of the building. And here's, here's what it says in Exodus 31. It quotes the word of God as God explained why the leaders of Israel should trust Bezalel to do this work. And God said, I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding and knowledge. Notice those three and just hold them in your mind there. Wisdom, understanding and knowledge and in all kinds of craftsmanship to make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and in bronze and in the cutting of stones for settings and in the carving of wood that he may work in all kinds of craftsmanship. Bezalel had a natural talent of craftsmanship, but God also gave him the spiritual gifts of wisdom and understanding and knowledge so that he would know how to use his natural talent for a spiritual end. He had the, the, the insight from God to follow God's plan and to, uh, and to execute exactly what God wanted so that people would be led to worship in the way that God wanted. You know that he wasn't doing all this work alone. He had to be the overseer of all others, uh, the, all the other artisans and craftsmen who were working. Well, God undoubtedly, in giving that knowledge and wisdom, gave a special ability to lead them to, to capture what God was creating and what they were doing, uh, serving God with that work. God will oftentimes bring together some of our natural talents with the serving gift, but the serving gift is not a natural talent. So how many serving gifts does a Christian receive? You know, the Scripture only tells us this. Everybody gets at least one. Everyone gets at least one. But you know, we usually know from our experience that very often God gives more than one uh, serving gift. Oftentimes one will be more dominant than another. But if you've been an, uh, a Christian, if you've been serving, you begin to realize that maybe you have more than one. And God will combine certain gifts in you, a gift mix, so to speak, that, uh, that you have to serve him in a special way. Do you know what the gifts are? There's actually a, a f- five different places in Scripture where we find um, lists of gifts. Two of them are in one specific chapter, but five different lists. You see the, where they are here. You can look those up on your own and, and read through the exact list. We won't take time to go through them. When we put them all together, we, uh, we actually uh, find that they, they make quite a large list of gifts. If you take into account that in these lists that there's some overlap in the, in the, the, uh, the gifts that are mentioned, so some of them mentioned in different lists, uh, uh, both, you know, both in one list and another list. And then other times, there are, in one list, there'll be a word here and a word here. They both seem to point to the same gift. They just use a different word to describe it. So when we go through and we, we evaluate and we collate and we put that into a, to a list, then we come up with about 20 different spiritual gifts that we have listed in Scripture, about 20 of them. And I'm just going to have put up here the, the, uh, the list of those 20 as, as I read them in the Scripture. Uh, too much for us to go through and talk about and separate and all that. But you can see, wow, what a diversity of, uh, of spiritual gifts there. I mean, it starts with the apostles and prophets who had that foundational gift for the starting of the church, but then it goes on to pastors and teachers who are still giving those gifts today. But then you, you scan across there and you can see, you see, well, God at times has given people the gift of miracles, and yet you look on the other list and the gift of administration. And, and you see the gift of giving or the gift of leading or the gift of mercy or the gift of faith that may be applied in prayer and so on. So there's all this variety of gifts. And, and so we look at that. And, you know, one of the things we realize in looking at all that is that realistically, we probably don't have a list of all the, the spiritual gifts. And especially when we look at all the five different lists, they're never put down as if, OK, well, here's the official list. They're always just mentioned as examples of the kind of gifts God gives. So here we can put together this list of 20, but realistically, there's probably more than that. Some people think, well, use that as the, as the big list, and then probably there are sub-gifts that fall under those different categories. That may well be true. The point is that God gives all sorts of different gifts to people. So how do we discover what our gifts are? How do we figure out what, what, what our gifts are? Well, it's helpful if you know some of these gifts, because as you're beginning to, to learn about how God is using you in ministry, you can sort of recognize what the gifts are. So it's worth a study of this. And, you know, Christians over the years have tried to put together some surveys or inventories, they call them, or quizzes or tests or whatever, 
where you can sort of take a self-test and you can learn, you know, what at least your tendency is so that maybe you could go that direction and, and help discover your own spiritual gift. Those are all okay things to do. But I've always been convinced that we truly discover our gifts just by entering into the ministry of the church. You just start doing things in the church and pretty soon God will help you to understand what your particular gifts are as you, uh, as you begin to, to uh, work in different areas of the church. You'll, you'll find them. You'll understand. I, my, my little word on this that I've always taught is this, that I think the key to discovering your gifts is what makes you cry and what makes you high. You maybe heard, heard me say this before. What makes you cry and what makes you hide? Now, what makes you cry isn't necessarily, you know, when you do something so badly in ministry, you start crying about it. But, but what I mean what makes you cry is when you, when you show up and you're participating in a ministry or you see something going on and you look at it and you just know it's going badly. It's not going as well as it could. And that causes you anguish. Because intuitively, because you've been given this spiritual gift, Intuitively, you know exactly why it's going badly. And you know how it would go better if it was done differently. And your heart cries because it's almost like you can't stand to watch it going on so badly. What makes you cry will help you sometimes to discover your spiritual gift, especially when you match it with what makes you high. What makes you high, of course, is what thrills you, excites you, gives you joy. So you go working along in the ministry of the church and you've been in this ministry and that ministry and suddenly you find yourself in a ministry where, man, you go home totally exhausted because you threw your whole self into ministry. But even though you're totally exhausted, you were going like, wow, that was good. I want to go back and do that again next week. And you could see that you were being effective. You could sense that God was working to you. You were made for that ministry. And you know what else? You got confirmation because other people were going, you did that really well. Would you come back and do that again? See, what makes you high, what makes you cry? You'll, God will help you to, to discover those gifts, especially as you're praying alongside and saying, God, help me to know where best to serve you. So pray and get involved. What's most important, though, is that you don't just learn your gift. Because you see, one of the things that happened after Pastor Ray Stedman really brought back into the American consciousness for Christians the idea of serving gifts is that people really got a passion to learn what their serving gifts were. You know, it was, it was like a, a discovery thing, like, hey, let's all discover our spiritual gifts, and then we can talk about it with each other. And, and that's always fun. But see, what happened is tons and tons of people found out what their spiritual gifts are, and then they never did anything with them. They just talked about them with each other. But spiritual gifts are always to be used. First Peter chapter 4, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Every member of the church is to use his or her gift in ministry. No believer in God's church is excused from using his or her ministry. No one is excused. William Hendrickson, I loved his take on this. He just said, you know what? In Christ's church, in light of this, there's no room for drones, only busy bees, he said. No room for drones, only busy bees in Christ's church because the entire church is to engage in spiritual labor, spiritual ministry. And when that happens, guess what? Church works well. Church works well. The ministry of Jesus Christ becomes effective. The church is is powerful, exciting in its ministry, fulfilling to those who participate in it. People are growing and flourishing in ministry and service to God. When that doesn't happen, though, when that doesn't happen, that people are using their gifts, well, guess what? The church isn't as effective. The church uh, suffers for it. Church becomes sometimes weak and, and frustrating. People aren't growing and flourishing because all the gifts aren't being used. I'm sure, uh, positive, just because of the way things are, that I doubt there's ever been a church where, you know, 100% of the people were working at full capacity of their gifts. But, you know, you could just see how, what if you had a church where 25% of the people were, were using their spiritual gifts, 75%? We're not. What would happen if suddenly 50% started using their gifts? Well, you could certainly expect that the ministry of the church would, would double in its effectiveness in ministry. That's the way it works in the church. And so that's why we need to be so committed to everyone doing their part. Romans chapter 12 says this, For just as we have many members in one body, and it's using as a figure our human body, for just as we have many members in one body, and all the, men, all the members do not have the same function, So we, 
the church, who are many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Look at that. That means we're all tied together, just like in the human body. All these different parts are tied together. And we only work well as a body when everybody's there doing their part. And so it goes on to say, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. The importance of doing that. That's something we all have to take to heart. You know, as a church, we have to come together. Old-time baseball manager Casey Stingle, he said, it's easy to get good players, but he says, getting them to play together, that's the hard part. You know, it's the same thing with church. We're all good players. We just have to get together and and make sure we we work together. We work together. The, The elders of our church, over the last few months, we actually wrote down our core values as a church so that we would have them as reminders uh, to ourselves, but also so that we could explain them to others who need to know, how does Northwest Hills operate and what do we value here? And one of the things on the list was this. Here's the, the title of this, number nine on the list. It says, we believe that God's church is to be manned like a battleship, not like a cruise liner. And the subtext says this, on a cruise liner, a crew is hired to serve the passengers. Now, that kind of sounds like one way of doing church, right? That's the clergy does everything model, right? On a cruise liner, the crew is hired to serve the passengers. But on a battleship, everyone on board is part of the crew and has a mission to fulfill. And so it is in the church. Every believer is created for ministry, gifted for ministry, authorized for ministry, and needed for ministry. And so we are committed then to helping everyone in our congregation to discover their spiritual gifts for ministry and serve in the ministry of the church. Because when that happens, incredible, incredible things happen. It's the, it's the old saying, you know, that, that snowflakes are frail, but when they stick together, they can stop traffic. You know, like individually, you know, we, we're not, we, we can't accomplish much, but together we can accomplish a lot. So what do we do? Every time we've learned something about the church, we've said, we've got to finish by saying, so now what do we do with this knowledge? And so what we do with this knowledge is we, we think about what our response should be to this. And number one should be this. Decide to do ministry. Decide to do ministry. God has left no doubt you are a minister. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ here, you already are a minister. God has already designated you as one of his ministers. He's already given you the gifts for ministry and he's instructed you to minister in your church. So you cannot legitimately say, I'm not a minister of Jesus Christ. I can't do it. Because God's already made it possible, authorized it. You're a minister. So what's left in our hands, though, is whether we're going to do anything with our ministry. Are we actually going to do the ministry? Based on what we've learned, of course, we should. It's the wise, the proper, the right, the exciting, the fulfilling thing to do. Do the ministry. So the key is, if you've never done it before, make a firm decision today that say, all right, I accept that. I will do ministry. I will do ministry. Tell God, say, God, I accept now what I know. I'm a minister. And so, Heavenly Father, I will serve you in your church with your people. If you already made that decision, reaffirm it today to God. Maybe you said it before, but but you need to say to God again, you know what, God, I've I've gotten out of that that picture. Now, um, in a church I was in once, the pastor used to do this a minimum of once, but several times a year. So I'm going to have you stand up just briefly and we'll sit down again, okay? Ready? Stand up. Come on. So here's what he would do every year, you know, usually on a, on a starting date, but sometimes just in the middle of the year, just to make sure everybody uh, remembered. He would stand you up and he would say, OK, you're the church, right? You're the church. And so uh, as the as the pastor of the church, on behalf of the elders, I ordain you all to ministry. You are all ordained. You are all ministers. You are all authorized to serve. You're all needed to serve. You are all ministers. Amen. 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 All right. Sit down, everybody. Let's get to work. OK. Make that decision for it. First step to getting somewhere, they always say, is deciding you're not going to stay where you are. So make that decision. Number two, commit to be equipped. Commit to be equipped. Because just because you are a minister doesn't necessarily mean that you're ready to perform at your peak level. That doesn't mean hold back on starting to use your spiritual gift. Go for it. God will use you, even though if you think, I could never do anything for, for God right now, he'll still use you in ministry. But understand you can grow to a peak level of performance. There's two NFL championship games on today, right? You're going to be looking at athletes who are at their peak level of performance, aren't you? 
I mean, they, they are trained mentally, physically. Man, they are ready to go today. Well, see, what happens in, in, the, in the churches is that we have our spiritual gifts, but just like, you know, those, those pro football players started in Pop Warner and then they went to high school and they went to college and they kept building their body and their muscles and their skills and their abilities and their knowledge and all that. And then even when they got in the NFL, they started all over with them, training them to work at the peak level. And so the same thing happens, you know, with us in church. God, as we grow up in him, enables us to serve at at top performance level. And so what needs to happen is what? We need to be, Scripture said, equipped. Remember that the pastors and teachers, what are they for? For equipping the saints, it says. Now, don't misunderstand. That doesn't mean that you go to the pastor or an elder to get your gift because you already have your gift, right? Some people think that's what we do when we, to get equipped for ministry. We go to the pastor, he hands us our gift from God, and then he says, oh, and by the way, come to this training session, and we'll have you all ready to go for ministry. Now, it is true that pastors and elders and deacons help people learn how to do ministry well, practically speaking. But the big idea here beyond that is that the, the equipping for ministry is that you grow up into spiritual maturity. You grow up into spiritual knowledge and spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding so that when you do ministry, you do it at peak level. You're doing it as one who has the character of Jesus Christ, the mind of Jesus Christ, because you've grown up in in your faith. You have insight. You have understanding. You have readiness. You're tuned in to God in a way you weren't before. And so you can do your ministry in an incredible way. The key then is you've got to be committed to, to being equipped. And that means doing exactly the kind of thing you're doing today. Coming to worship, listening to the teaching of God's word, being in a Bible study, small group, being discipled, whatever it is, that you're growing up in your faith. And so in order to, to really be a great servant, make sure you're, you're growing in that way. This may require a change of mindset on your part. Because sometimes we think, hey, this thing where I do my Bible study or I read my life journal or whatever, that's all about me and my relationship to God. It's me and God. It's just us two. It's not that. What the scripture tells us is when you're growing up in your faith, you're not growing up just so you can enjoy this better relationship just between you and God. You're growing up so that you can be a fabulous minister in his church. And so the mindset is, hey, you know what? I need to be in that Bible study just not because I need to be more in tune with God just for our relationship, because how can I serve him if I'm not growing up in my, in my faith? So make sure you, you, you get that concept. You make some decisions to practice spiritual discipline in growing up. Then third, make sure you participate wholeheartedly. Participate wholeheartedly in the life of the church, because there's no way you can effectively do ministry unless you're deeply involved in the church. You've got to be where the church is. You've got to be among the people of the church. Because there's other people doing their ministry into your life. And you're doing your ministry into their life. How can you do your ministry effectively? How can you be a minister for God unless you're really connected? So you've got to get engaged. You've got to settle in one congregation. You've got to start being part of what they do in worship, in fellowship, in giving, in serving. You've got to join in on that. Make sure you participate. That's going to require that you make church a high priority is tough in our culture because there's so many different things we can give priority to. But, it, but what it, the scripture lets us know here is, you know, I've got to give high priority to the church. I've got to make a point of participating and putting some other things second. Then last of all, we need to do this. We need to use our gifts and we need to use them diligently as we're participating. Because in giving us our, our serving gifts, God intended that we don't just use them occasionally. Like, oh, I think I can do that maybe twice a year. No, God wants us to do it in an ongoing way, not sporadically, but frequently, consistently, regularly. That's what Peter meant when he said, remember, employ your gift. <laughs> he meant like put it to use every day, like you go to work, you know, every day. Put it to use. You know, don't just sit on it and bring it out, dust it off occasionally and do something. No, use it regularly. He said, remember, do this as good stewards. Did you catch that? He says, use your gift as good stewards. A steward is one who, uh, who, who has responsibility over something important. God has given you an important responsibility, so use it. And what am I using it for again? Remember in Ephesians, it said, for the building up of the body of Christ, so that the church of Jesus Christ is incredibly full of people who are all using their gifts. And because they're all using their different gifts, everybody's working together. But they keep making each other even stronger and stronger. Make sure you're, you're committed to doing that. How do you do that? Well, you know, an easy way is start joining a ministry team. 
Just pick a ministry team at the church and volunteer to use on or use your gift in it. If you know what your gift is and you say, your church doesn't really have one of those teams yet, well, find a way to use it anyway. Come talk to us and say, look, this is my gift. I don't see a team. How could I start using it? Who knows? God may even be calling you to be a leader of a team. But use your gift diligently, whatever it is. Practice it if you know it. Take the initiative to, uh, to step out and do that. That's when church becomes great. That's when church becomes great. Carrie Walsh, uh, Misty May trainer, if you're volleyball fans, you know who they are. They just dominated women's doubles volleyball in the world for a great length of time. And last Summer Olympics, they just whizzed through and just pounded everybody and won the gold medal again. And the big question that was always asked them when they had their news conferences was, which one of you is better? Because they played doubles, you know. Which one of you is better? Which one of you is a better volleyball player? And they always chose to never answer, but people kept asking the question. Finally, one time, Carrie Walsh just said, that's a stupid question. <laughs> she said, that's a stupid question. She said, you know, together, we're, uh, uh, individually, we're good, she said, but together, we're gold. And that's what happens when the church gets together with its people. Individually, we're good. Together, we're gold. In a church I served in previously, uh, when Laurel and I arrived in that church, it, it had just gone through a devastating year or two years or so of, of troubles. And uh, what had been a church that was 500 in regular attendance was 60 in size when we got there. And uh, just un- uncountable amounts of problems. But this core of people who stayed behind wanted to restart their church. Well, one of the people when we got there was a man named Nelson, who eventually served on the elder board, was chairman of the elder board, eventually even served on the staff of the church uh, after a period of time. But he just had a regular job when he arrived there and was just another member of the church. And I was talking to him one time about his coming to that church. And when I brought it up, I, you know, I mentioned uh, just, you know, well, tell me when you got there. And he told me, he said, well, we got there at just at the, like, the time of the, when everything was at its worst. And I said, well, why in the world did you stay? They just moved into town. I said, why did you go and stay at that church, then, at our church? And he said, well, my wife and I, we looked around, and it was pretty obvious that they needed some help. And uh, he was in the military prior to his, his uh, other job that he had at that point, had traveled around a lot. And he said, you know, wherever my wife and I went in the military, our attitude was we would always go in, and wherever we lived, we said, God, where can we serve you best? Where can we be your servants? Which church do you just want to be in? He said, when we got to, to where we are now, God made it very clear, this is a church that needs you. Wow, what an attitude, right? Not, hey, what you got for us? You know, show us your stuff. Are you worthy for us to be part of your church? No. Nope. No. Nope. God, what can we do? How can we apply our gifts? That's what God wants us to be. Stand with us. Let's, let's close by turning our hearts, our minds to God in prayer and song. Lord God, we are so thankful. So thankful. What a privilege to be part of all you're doing. What a privilege to receive not just your saving grace, but your serving grace. Lord, thank you for teaching us about it today. Help us to put our, what we, our knowledge to use in a great way. We don't in any way, Father, want to be those who, who uh, uh, accept that we're gifted, but then don't use our gifts. We don't want to be those who look at others needing to use their gifts. We don't want to be those who depend on a few leaders to do the work. Lord, we want to find our place and enjoy serving you. We want to make church work the way you want it to work. We want this congregation, Lord, here to be powerfully strong because it's our home church. But, Father, we pray for the other churches in town here, in this state, in this nation, Lord. Lord, bring the believers together. Help them to understand and follow too. Father, where some of us are are now interested in in finding our place of service, please lead us and guide us and help us to understand where you want us to be and how we can best minister for you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.